0: Welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week on Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science, in addition to its impact on war, peace, and the environment. And today, we're not going to talk about outer space. We're not going to talk about stars and the universe. We're going to talk about inner space, specifically what's inside your mind. In fact, psychology and evolutionary psychology have undergone an explosion over the last several years as we try to tease apart the fundamental question, why do we behave the way we do? In fact, Daniel Dennett claims that we can even look at the question of religion in this way, that perhaps religion is a byproduct of evolution. For example, uh, early man and women that had religious rituals stayed together and could actually survive in the forest better than individuals that did not have a common mythology and a glue to hold them together. So some people think that survival of the fittest, the theory of Charles Darwin, can explain why we have religion. And then our other special guest is Professor Steven Pinker of Harvard University And he's going to talk about the mind. Is the mind really a blank slate, as many philosophers thought, that you can write almost anything by changing people's upbringing? Or is there really a core? A core of certain kinds of behaviors that are hardwired into us. Think of the animal kingdom. The animal kingdom does, in fact, have many behaviors called instincts that are hardwired. And the question is, does that also apply to humanity as well? So on Exploration Today, we're going to talk about inner space. Why do you think the way you do, including religion and our own sense of who we are? The first interview is with Professor Daniel Denneth of Tufts University, and he's the author of a very controversial book called Breaking the Spell, Religion as a Natural Phenomenon. That's right, natural phenomena. Professor Dennett claimed that you can actually explain religion using Darwinian evolutionary theory and also the environmental stresses and strains that humans had to experience in order to survive in the forest over millions of years. In other words, religion as a natural phenomenon. And then in the second half of exploration, we're going to bring on Professor Steven Pinker of Harvard University, professor of psychology, author of the book, The Blank Slate, The Modern Denial of Human Nature. And in fact, if you think about liberals and conservatives, where they differ sharply is on the question of human nature. Are we hardwired by genetics and evolution to behave a certain way? and therefore we have to take that as a step number one, or can we mold, mold the human behavior to create a new man and a new woman? That, of course, goes to the very heart of the difference between liberals and conservatives. To introduce our special guest for today. We're very delighted to have with us Dr. Daniel Dennett, director of the Center for Cognitive Studies at Tufts University, and he's the author of a very controversial book that people are talking about called Breaking the Spell, Religion as a Natural Phenomenon. In other words, can science tease apart the origin of religion? Is religion itself a byproduct of Darwin's theory of evolution? Well, these are some of the questions we're going to ask Dr. Dennett as we talk about whether or not science can explain religion. In other words, can we break the spell? Religion as a natural phenomenon. As a youth now, can you tell me how you first got interested in science?
1: Well, I got some books that had a wonderful for children, well, not for children, for young adults, an account of, of Einstein's theory of relativity, and I read that through and got fascinated with it. But actually, I, I didn't study science very very much in school. I was a, I w- In college, I was a philosophy major. I didn't really get into science until I was in graduate school, when I decided I really wanted to understand how the human mind worked. And to do that, you had to know psychology, you had to know neuroscience, you had to know artificial intelligence. So I began to Educate myself in those fields.
0: Well, then, what was it? You know, what was what was it about philosophy as a youth that got you interested?
1: Well, I think a lot of kids ask philosophical questions without thinking of it as philosophy. Just why are we here? What's the nature of truth? What's the nature of reality? Uh, what's time? What's space? What's a cause? Uh, and I found myself um, asking those questions. And I think it was when I was a Oh, about 11 or 12 or 10, maybe, uh, off at summer camp, and a few of the counselors there suggested to me, oh, what you are is a philosopher, Dan. And I didn't even know what a philosopher was, but so I thought, oh, okay, cool. You mean you can you can actually do this for a living? Wouldn't that be great?
0: Okay, and then what got you interested in cognitive science?
1: Um, well, cognitive science is uh, didn't even exist when I first got interested in it as a term. It's just the various sciences, the interdisciplinary field of the mind. And uh, uh, as I said, I was interested in what dreams were and optical illusions and visual halluc- illusions and hallucinations and uh, memory. And I thought about it just on my own as best I could, and I began to hunt around for uh, uh, books and experiments. And, uh, but most of my serious work in cognitive science didn't start till I was in graduate school.
0: Okay, now let's talk about religion and the substance of your book. Uh, First of all, anyone picking up a copy of your book might think to themselves, "Uh uh-oh, here's another liberal diatribe by an atheist denouncing religion and saying God does not exist. However, I guess that would be an unfair criticism of that, right?
1: Well, that would be an unfair criticism, uh, not because I'm not a liberal and an atheist. I am both a liberal and an atheist. But that's not the point of my book. My point of the book is to say, look, I don't know whether religion is a good thing or not. It may be, but it's a thing. It's a phenomenon. It's a fantastic set of phenomena. They're beautifully designed to do what they do. Let's study them scientifically. We really need to because our understanding of these phenomena is going to be very crucial in the coming century as we deal with the world's problems. Let's look under the hood and see what makes them tick.
0: Okay, now if you were a Martian coming down to analyze Homo sapiens and you realize that, well, gee, all Homo sapien tribes have a religion, there seems to be a deity or some kind of mystical uh, trappings to each of these philosophies, wouldn't you say, therefore, that, well, gee, maybe there's something genetic about all this?
1: Well, uh, something has to explain it. You're absolutely right. Um, uh, Martian biologists would say... uh, no, no such expenditure of energy and time and, and wealth uh, could possibly uh, persist if it wasn't if it wasn't paid for by, by differential reproduction of one sort or another. So there's probably a genetic base, but of course it could also be that the that the practices themselves uh, reproduce. Uh, and jump from host to host, from person to person, and the, the, the survival benefit is to them, not to, the, not to their host.
0: Okay, now let's talk about that specifically. Uh, the essence of evolution is that when different species acquire certain characteristics by mutations or what have you, uh, it helps their survivability. That's they right. then pass these characteristics on to their progeny. There's an advantage. Now here's the key question, therefore. If societies do spontaneously uh, uh, adopt religions, then if there is an evolutionary basis to this, as you claim, there is an advantage. There has to be some kind of selective advantage that religion gives them. What is that advantage?
1: Well, there has to be a selective advantage that is given to something, not necessarily to them. You're right. Every, every human culture that's been studied, from small tribes to great nations, has, has religion. Every human culture already all, ever studied also has the common cold. Now, if we say, well, gee, I wonder what advantage the common cold provides to, uh, to people. The answer is it doesn't provide any. It survives because it can survive. The advantage is to it, to the, to the viruses and other pathogens that reproduce. And what we have to take seriously is the idea that religion survive because they can. Now, maybe they're really good for us. After all, in our bodies, in each of our bodies, there are not just thousands, not millions, not billions, but trillions of tiny organisms without which we could not live. They are essential to us. But it's their survival that that's how they evolve. They evolve. Uh, uh, they have their own genetic fitness. and we have to look at the fitness of religious ideas on their own.
0: Okay. Now, in your book, you take us back thousands and thousands of years when humanity existed in small tribes, almost like in wolf packs, and you then trace how religion could emerge from these very primitive societies because it performed some kind of service. So take us back now to the early days and trace the origin of religion.
1: Okay. First of all, I want to remind you of of, uh, of a feature that we share with with most animals, uh, um, you may have seen your dog suddenly jump up when, and growl when uh, some, some snow slid off the roof uh, and landed with a noisy thud outside the window, or some, start, some noise suddenly makes your dog jump up and growl. What's that dog doing? He's looking around to see, who's that? Who's that? Who's there? Who made that noise? He's jumping to the conclusion that there's an agent a being that has beliefs and desires and intentions that maybe is out to get him. Now that's a hair trigger response, the the agent detector or the agency detector, and it's a it's something that we have. When we hear rustling in the bushes, we are uh, immediately alerted to this. Whenever anything novel and complicated, mysterious happens, one of our first thoughts, if not our very first thought, is who's there, who's doing that, why, and this has. This obviously has a survival advantage. It's it's a, it's it's a great way of staying alive if you've got a sort of predator detector. Of course, it may be a mate or it may be a rival. Uh, you want to find out. You want to orient to that thing and find out. So that's something that we share with animals. So what I suppose is that just as, as your dog might jump up, whenever puzzling things happened among our hominid ancestors, they were... They were saying, who's that, to themselves. But then their imaginations, because they had language, I'm supposing, at this time, this were taking us back way into prehistory. But, but when language had been born, these ancestors of ours said, gosh, what was that? Did that tree talk? I think that tree talked. Oh, my God, a talking tree. And of course, they didn't say, oh, my God. They said, oh, my, a talking tree. And they did this all the time. Maybe hundreds of times a day, they'd do the little startle. And most of these were sort of silly ideas, and they didn't catch on. But a few of them were sort of more memorable, sort of unforgettable, and they would stick in people's heads, and they would think about them. And maybe they'd compare notes and say, Hey, do you know about that talking tree? Oh, no, really, a talking tree? Who knows what the ideas were? But they re- replicated in the minds of the people, and they began to have a common stock of unforgettable ideas of agents. These were not real agents. These were figments of their imagination. But we've just explained how that could get started. Now we've got competition in the brains of those ancestors. There's limited space. There's competition for rehearsal space in those minds. And some of them, the most unforgettable, the most vivid, the most, the most gratifying to think about, those are the ones that are going to stick around. So now we've got gods and demons and goblins uh, in in great abundance, as we see in the world's uh, folk religions today. And then gradually these get refined, and I could tell a very long story, but I tell it in the book, but I'll just shorten it down now and say, a few of these ideas were particularly valuable, or apparently valuable. For instance, one of the most uncomfortable feelings anybody can have is the sense of indecision. What do I do now? What should I do now? And sometimes we flip a coin, or sometimes we consult tea leaves, or sometimes we ask a friend, and sometimes we're just stumped. Well, the idea of asking one of these gods, what should I do? And then waiting until some kind of signal is given back could have been a great way to just get us off the dime and get us to do something. And sometimes when... Indecision is itself the enemy, when mainly what we have to do is figure out what to do and then all agree to do it together. Having a God that can tell you what to do, even if the God is just complete chance, at least you're going to do something, you're all going to do the same thing.
0: Now, animals apparently are not aware of their mortality, Humans, of course, can be obsessed by their mortality, and some people think that perhaps religion got started when we began to contemplate an afterlife. But what are your thoughts?
1: Well, I think there's a lot to that. Um, uh, A a corpse is something which is fearful and something that we find uh, repugnant, and, and we want to get away from it. At the same time, if it's the body of a loved one, we want to approach it. We don't want to go away so we have a tremendous conflict when when somebody we love somebody particularly in our family dies this creates turmoil for for good biological reasons and that somehow that turmoil has to be negotiated something has to be done so this is a very powerful force to to drive the creation of ritual as a as a way of getting over this turmoil and responding to it and part of what we have to deal with there is the habits of mind that we've formed. For years, we've been thinking, well, I wonder what she thinks about this. and Would she like this or would she like that? Or Does she know such and such? Oh, I hope she doesn't know that I just did that, and so forth and so on. We're always imagining, thinking about, wondering about what our loved ones are thinking about, wanting, intending, doing. When somebody dies, that doesn't stop. We can't turn that habit off. Those, those habits of mind continue and fill our heads with the ghost of the person who just died. That's a sort of persistence of a habit of thought, which quite naturally turns into the conviction that, well, they're not really dead. They're still here. You can't see them anymore, but they're still here. They're with us. And we can still ask them, what should we do now? So, it's not surprising that in, in just about every case that's been studied, the ancestors of the religion are ancestors. There's ancestor worship. Uh, it is no accident that God is called father or occasionally mother in just about every religion.
0: Now, back in those days, people didn't live very long. Uh, today, of course, we can plan our retirement in Florida. But back then, they didn't live long enough to die of heart disease and cancer and old age. Uh, the life expectancy was on the order of perhaps maybe 20 years, say some demographers. So death was constantly around them, including their own mortality. So you think that gave an impetus to, to, for people to believe in religion, realizing that they could live forever, even though there's death all around them?
1: Um, yeah, I think that's, I think that's uh, a, a plausible factor. I think we can we could take that one and many others and put them all together uh, and then start sorting them out and seeing which ones which ones are really important and why and then we can start to dream up psychological research for instance that could test some of those hypotheses it seems for instance to be uh, particularly important that I mean there's a tradition that god is omniscient but it turns out that what people really behave as if they believe is that God is omniscient about things that matter morally or that matter strategically? Uh, it, it's not so much that that, that, uh, that God knows uh, how many grains of sand are on the beach, but God knows if you do something wrong, or God knows uh, if you tell a lie, uh, or or uh, where the where the the stolen items uh, are. Uh, we can we can devise subtle experiments that can test out people's uh, really involuntary reactions to c- scenarios of this sort, and see that uh, uh, a lot of the lore of religion that is uh, officially written in the in the text is not actually officially followed.
0: Now, then the key question is, what advantage does this confer onto a tribe? Let's say you have two tribes, one tribe that ignores religion totally, yep and one tribe that gets into all this mysticism, reincarnation, God-worship, pantheism, what have you, uh, why does the second tribe survive or have a better survival um, probability than the first tribe, which says, Bah, humbug, there are no demons, there are no ghosts, there is no afterlife?
1: Well, um, maybe it doesn't. That's that's just one of the evolutionary possibilities. It may be that the the, uh, ideas... Of the, of, the, of the religious ideas, they survive just fine, but they don't do the tribe any good. That's always a possibility. Uh, it's probably more likely that the tribe that does have the uh, uh, religious ideas, the beliefs in the supernatural, is uh, given a greater sense of cohesiveness. Uh, they're a bit more forthright. They are, are more confident in battle. Uh, and there's a lot of warfare going on uh, between these tribes, uh, they're more ruthless and more confident in battle, and that may be uh, the key to why, why it helped them. Uh, whether it's still a good uh, adaptation uh, for, for human groups is, is an open question. Uh, our sweet tooth, after all, is, is, is more of a problem than a benefit today, but it was certainly a, it was certainly a good adaptation for us to have back in those days.
0: Now, we also had uh, Dean Hamer, uh, Hammer from the National Institutes of Health on our radio waves. He talked about a God gene, uh, the fact that perhaps there is a gene in our genome that actually uh, uh, selects out those people who believe in God. And there is something called epileptic lesions, uh, that is, uh, lesions to the brain that can actually be induced by a blow to the brain, in which people see gods, demons, uh, and witches everywhere. That everything is caused by gods. If it rains, well, there was a rain god that did it. They became they become super duper religious. If they have epileptic lesions, some people think may, maybe Joan of Arc uh, had epileptic lesions. But well, what are your thoughts about something as uh, um, something as nitty gritty as a god gene?
1: Well, I think that's putting it in a in a sort of overly. Vivid and 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 crude way. Of course, sometimes you have to get an idea out there in sort of cartoon form first, and then look at the details. I think it's possible. First of all, of course, no matter what you think about, there's something in your brain that's lighting up uh, uh, just in order to make it possible to think about that. So the fact that there would be parts of your brain lighting up when you're thinking about God or when you know, when you're having a religious experience is is should not be a surprise to anybody on any account. The question is, why would there be, if there is, uh, a specific uh, gene for making it more likely for people to have uh, religious experiences? And um, Hamer doesn't have much to say about this in his book, but I think uh, others have put forward some interesting research that could shed light on this. Um, uh, uh, McLennan, the the, uh, anthropologist, has pointed out that Everywhere uh, in folk religions you have shamanic healing, you have witch doctors, you have shamans who go through elaborate ceremonies, and then often they have uh, involving hallucinogens and, and drugs, local potions made of, of, of materials found in the area. And some of this really works. Uh, it works for some things. Uh, shamanic healing is, is not just hocus-pocus. And In particular, uh, it works for conditions where a placebo effect can be induced. Uh, And so the suggestion is that what shamanic healers were very good at finding, devising, were techniques which they passed on to to their successors for inducing a sort of hypnotic analgesia, a sort of hypnosis, had a placebo effect, which helped relieve the pain of childbirth, for instance, and could cure uh, some ills. Now, if that's true, then the fact that some people are more or less immune to hypnosis, they just aren't hypnotizable, other people are very hypnotizable. Now, if there's a genetic difference between those people, and there may well be, and that may be what Dean Hamer has, has discovered, then, of course, having to hypnosis would be in effect having health insurance. (laughs) Uh, Back in those days, there were no doctors, there were no hospitals. If you needed relief, your only hope was the shaman. And if you had a genetic difference from your neighbor, which meant that shamans were more effective with you than they were with your neighbor, this could be a tremendous fit
0: Okay, I picked up a copy of Time Magazine a few years ago where on the cover they talked about uh, science and religion. And inside it mentioned that if you take an electromagnetic transmitter and put it right next to a certain part of the brain to excite a very specific region of the brain, people become very religious. Uh, they think they're in the presence of an omniscient being. They become awestruck uh, by this presence And uh, this is not a healing thing. This is not going to make you, uh, you know, cure cancer or anything. But there seems to be a part of the brain which responds, uh, a part of the brain which has evolved. And the question is, why would this part of the brain evolve unless there was some, like I said, advantage to feeling that you're in the presence of a deity?
1: Uh, Well, it could evolve for any number of of reasons. Um, uh, If you show people certain visual effects, they see uh, amazing illusions. Uh, why did that evolve? It evolved as a byproduct of a good working visual system. No no uh, organ system is perfect. There's always the scope in which it works well, and then there are the conditions under which it works pathologically. And uh, if if those conditions are rare enough, or if the pathology is not too deleterious, then that can be a good bargain. The best, the best of all possible worlds is a, a vision system which almost never gives you hallucinations or illusions, but of course sometimes it does. Why do we see a stick in the water as bent? Well, because it's just too expensive to make a vision system that can somehow correct for Snell's law of refraction. However, there are fish and birds that do have vision systems that can correct for, for the refraction of water. So it's not impossible. So the, the fact that if it is, and I'm, I'm not quite so sure that the, the transcranial magnetic stimulation works quite as, as uh, crisply as you suggest, but let's suppose for the sake of argument that it does, uh, why should there be uh, a spot which uh, induces uh, uh, some sort of religious conviction to occur? Well, that's a very good question, and... It may not be because it's good to have that belief. It may be that it's good to have the beliefs that uh, the system delivers, and this is the system in a pathological state.
0: Well, I'm afraid that's it for the first part of Exploration. Once again, our special guest has been Professor Daniel Dennett of Tufts University, author of the controversial new book, Breaking the Spell, Religion as a Natural Phenomenon*. And if you want a copy of today's program, call the Pacifica Program Service at 1-800-735-0230. That's 1-800-735-0230 for a copy of today's program. And be sure to dial into my website. It's www.mkaku.org, mkaku.org. And so far, we've logged over 110 million page hits on that website. So stay tuned for the second half of Exploration. Welcome. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. And this is the second half of Exploration. In the first half of Exploration, we began a dialogue with Dr. Daniel Dennett, author of a very controversial book called Breaking the Spell, Religion as a Natural Phenomenon*. In other words, if you look at Darwinian theory of evolution you begin to realize that, well, societies that are religious have an extra survival value added to it. And perhaps it's no accident that religions around the world share some basic commonality. And in fact, those tribes that had a religion were in some sense able to cope with the environment better than those societies that did not have religion. So religion emerges as a natural phenomenon, according to Professor Dennett. Well, in this part of exploration, we're going to talk about the mind, and our special guest in this segment is Professor Steven Pinker of Harvard University, author of another controversial book called The Blank Slate, The Modern Denial of Human Nature. And the question is, is human nature programmed at birth? Is it just a matter of genetics, or is it a question of being learned by interacting with the environment? Well, this nature-nurture controversy is very old, but recent evidence seems to clarify exactly how much comes from nature and how much comes from nurture. And this, of course, also goes to the core difference between liberals and conservatives. Human nature, is it infinitely pliable or is it hardwired from the very beginning? That of course determines your politics in terms of what you think can be accomplished through legislation through different kinds of social movements. So once again, our second guest is Professor Steven Pinkert of Harvard University, professor of psychology, author of the book, The Blank Slate, The Modern Denial of Human Nature. I'd like to introduce our very special guest today. We're delighted to have with us Professor Steven Pinker. He's a professor of psychology at Harvard University, formerly of MIT, and he's the author of a controversial and delightful new book called The Blank Slate, The Modern Denial of Human Nature. Of all the issues affecting modern industrialized society, perhaps one of the most contentious, splitting the left and the right from liberals to conservatives, is the question of how how far can you mold human behavior with social policy? Liberals, for example, like to believe that humans are in some sense a blank slate and that social policies can remold the human character. Well, conservatives say not so fast. If you take a look at the DNA data, if you take a look at twin studies of twins separated at birth, they say that there's a core, a core set of values that are in some sense hardwired or genetically programmed into our bodies, and it's, it's silly to fight against these core set of human values and human nature. Well, who's right? Well, once again, our special guest today is Professor Steven Pinker of Harvard, and the book is called The Blank Slate the modern denial of human nature. The first question for you, Professor Pinker, is why did you become a cognitive scientist? I mean, after all, when we're little, uh, little boys play with GI Joe dolls and He-Man dolls, and, and you, here you are looking at the brain and pushing the frontiers of linguistics and, and how the brain functions. So
2: how did you first get interested in
0: brain science?
2: Uh, I think it came from an interest in human nature, and part of it was growing up in the 1960s when people were discussing the optimal form of social organization, as if you could redesign society from scratch. And that depends a lot on uh, what what you think makes people tick. So uh, how the brain works uh, was a question, at least implicitly, that was in the air, uh the problem was that it had a kind of squishy or airy fairy feel to it when it stated at that level of generality. when I found that in college that there was a field called cognitive science that could actually study what makes people tick in the lab and gather data and formulate testable theories, I knew that's what I wanted to do
0: okay and why did you decide to write a book called the blank slate
2: well i in in studying uh, how the mind works, studying how language works, uh, often you come up against objections that really don't come from the scientific claims themselves, but rather come from some fear that certain kinds of scientific claims are politically or morally dangerous. And I think that influences not just the public in how they react to the science, but sometimes the scientists themselves. their are areas they don't want to go into questions they don't want to ask or conclusions that they resist uh, because of the, these political and moral colorings. So I thought it was best to put them out into the open to confront what the implications are and are not about different discoveries about uh, the human mind so that we can separate the politics from the science.
0: And speaking about the politics, there are trends, uh, things come and go. At one point, we talked about the noble savage. At other points, we talked about the ghost in the machine. And at other points in in history, people talked about the blank slate. So tell us a little little bit about those three and how they've sort of come and gone over the years. And what are your particular points of view?
2: Yes, all three of of these ideas uh, really came from the uh, Enlightenment and the discussions among philosophers at the time over uh, the human mind and indeed over political arrangements and and theological implications. So I come up with catchy names for these three ideas, which I think have uh, continued to be, in our culture, a kind of secular religion, something that people believe in even if they don't uh, invoke God explicitly. The blank slate is the idea that we are not born with any talents or temperaments, and that the entire structure of the mind comes from culture and socialization and society, that we have no innate tendencies whatsoever. The noble savage is the corollary that says that anything that uh, we find dislikable about human behavior, selfishness, lust, uh, greed, fear of strangers, uh, desire for power, competitiveness, are all products of corrupt social institutions and are not uh, part of our nature, Uh, and that humans in a more natural state, such as the one enjoyed by hunter-gatherers, free from government and social institutions, would naturally live in harmony and peace. Finally, the third idea is the ghost in the machine, uh, which is that we are, in addition to our bodies and brains, um, immaterial beings called souls, or minds, or spirits, and that you can't uh, reduce human thought and behavior to the physiological activity of the brain, but there's some extra invisible uh, ingredient, the soul, which infuses us and uh, allows us to make choices and experience the world.
0: Now, this, of course, has uh, social repercussions in some sense that if you have a criminal, some people would say that you can reform that criminal, that perhaps their criminal behavior was a byproduct of poverty and that the human personality is malleable. Other people may say, bah, humbug, that there are some innate, innate things within us and certain things are doomed to fail. So where do you fall in this political spectrum? And what's your take on those three philosophies?
2: Right. Well, certainly, criminal behavior is not a particularly uh, sensible scientific category. Uh, if it were, then uh, probably two thirds of people under the age of twenty-five would, would be criminals for downloading music on the internet, for example. Mm-hmm. But if we look at particular uh, kinds of behavior that are uh, that we can kind of define independent of, of criminality, such as um, of, of violent tendencies, um, on the one hand, um, there are many variations in violent tendencies that have nothing to do with genes or, or uh, uh, innate tendencies. The fact that societies can go from uh, being militant to peaceable in, uh, in a generation shows that it can't all be in the genes. You and I had an earlier conversation in which you pointed out that uh, Japan, for example, went from highly militaristic to one of the world's most pacifist societies in a very short period of time. Uh, And and, uh, changes like that have happened many times in history. On the other hand, within a given society, there are differences among people in their willingness to inflict harm. Uh, Criminologists note that even in in very violent parts of the country, such as some American inner cities, a small number of the people uh, commit a disproportionate number of the violent acts. And also, uh, so it means that uh, within a culture some of the variation uh, depends on the individual, and studies of twins, such as identical twins reared apart, and comparisons of identical and fraternal twins, show that some of that variation is uh, due to differences in genes. Moreover, all people, I think, have uh, uh, the capacity to react violently in certain circumstances. We see that whenever um, uh, uh, the force of law and government disappears, Uh, violence uh, breaks out, uh, suggesting that even in social conditions in which people inhibit their tendencies toward violence, they're they're, um, waiting to break out if not uh, properly constrained by the cultural context. So the answer, as in almost all questions of nature and nurture, is that it's an, uh, an interplay of both, and it depends whether you're talking
0: Okay, let's be specific about some of the hot-button issues that you mention in your book, like feminism, raising of children, violence. Let's get right into some of these hot-button issues, including violence. Now, a liberal may approach this issue by saying, if you take a look at an unemployed male in a poor area, uh, well, there seems to be a gene for violence, and that is the male gene. However, the way to deal with it is not to have uh, some kind of eugenics, but to give them a job. Uh, Studies have shown that when uh, male criminals get married, uh, their crime rate drops enormously, and the key to getting married is having economic stability, and the key to that is jobs. So liberal would say perhaps jobs is the way to deal with the problem, and however a conservative may come in and say, now wait a minute, uh, I mean, sometimes you can't rehabilitate people. Uh, sometimes it's a waste of money to do these things. Well, where do you fit on some of these things, and what do you think should be done on the question of violence in
2: society? Well, I think... Uh, The the positions aren't mutually exclusive, and I think both of them have merit. Certainly, uh, there there are many data, um, including studies of changes in hormones, that show that uh, when men uh, hitch up and get married, their tendency toward violence goes down for reasons that many evolutionary psychologists have discussed, such as that uh, men, uh, when they uh, are competing for a mate, will... Strive for a reputation for toughness and status and esteem, which will include uh, inflicting revenge on anyone who disses them uh, or uh, compromises their interests. And so, if you have uh, men in a situation in which they're more likely to get married, they'll spend less of their energy competing on the streets, and indeed their testosterone levels and other hormones will go down in response. Certainly, the idea that uh, providing economic Uh, uh, conditions in which men can find jobs would uh, likely lead to a reduction in the crime rate. Although criminologists will also say that there's a lot of fluctuation in the uh, crime rate that can't be explained by uh, economic conditions, such as in the last uh, three years there's been a reduction in the crime rate, even as the economy has gotten worse. Uh, there's a lot in the fluctuation of crime rates that no one understands, uh, my understanding. But in, in addition, um, holding all of that constant, whether the crime rate is high or the crime rate is low, there are some individuals who uh, are have uh, an utterly callous attitude towards the suffering, suffering or well-being of other people. These are the people we call psychopaths. There's evidence that psychopaths can't be rehabilitated, uh, that they psychopathy may be partly genetic, partly due to unknown causes. And in cases like that, um, I think one has to m- not be too romantic and say, if, if we release someone who has uh, raped or tortured or killed, uh, and we don't know what to do with them. We might be better off preventing them from har- harming uh, other innocent women or children or uh, adults in the future. And uh, the... Willingness to incapacitate someone who has a high probability of harming someone else doesn't preclude uh, attention to more general social and political changes that might lead to a reduction in crime statistically across the whole country.
0: Well, let me play devil's advocate for a moment. Uh, A liberal may come in at this point and say that, well, the bulk of crimes are committed by unsocialized uh, males of single mothers. And on each point, they are social problems. The fact that there is a single mother, the fact that you have an unsocialized male son of, an, of a single mother, uh, these are things that can be rectified through social policy. Conservatives say, not so fast, not so fast. There are innate human characteristics which are very difficult to unwire. Uh, well, what are your thoughts about uh, whether or not it's possible through social policy to change uh, these unsocialized males of single mothers, or whether that's really the problem at all.
2: Yes. Well, there, there are a number of issues. I mean, again, these aren't mutually exclusive, but there may be some individuals who are more prone to violence uh, in, in just about any social situation. There may be some that are uh, more prone to violence in some circumstances, such as after uh, growing up in a uh, tough neighborhood where you've got to defend your interests by a reputation for uh, machismo. Uh, whereas in another circumstance, they might uh, enhance their reputation by verbal argumentation or by uh, competing in music. Um, Going back to the liberal-conservative divide, though, in in fairness to conservatives, the standard uh, response I I anticipate to your question would be that, uh, indeed, single motherhood is a uh, cause of crime, and that the cause of single motherhood is the welfare policies that allow women to uh, support babies without uh, getting married, therefore uh, giving men a free ride. They can get uh, all the sex they want without bearing the responsibility of marrying the mother of their children and supporting them. If you've got the government taking over the role of husbands and fathers, there'll be less of a demand for husbands and fathers, and you'll have more single mothers and hence more crime. I think that is the more standard conservative response to your question. Uh, concerns about uh, eugenics and uh, bad seeds and uh, violent genes are actually pretty rare among conservatives uh, over the past few decades.
0: Okay, let's also talk about the institution of war. Uh, a liberal may say that perhaps we should try more negotiations, uh, perhaps more reason. A conservative would say, bah, humbug, look at human history. Uh, war seems to be a constant and it's a dangerous world out there and might makes right and nations only respect force. So what are your thoughts on the question of war?
2: Well, I, I probably am not, not very well equipped to uh, give up uh, much of a general answer. Uh, I, I certainly think that we've that, um the uh, depending on the adversary, either of those strategies might be uh, appropriate. The thing about violence is that it's in it's an example of what game theorists call a prisoner's dilemma. Uh, that often the best solution would be for both sides to back down simultaneously and to negotiate their differences. Unfortunately, it can also happen that if one side goes to war and the other one backs down, the uh, victor will get the spoils. And so even though uh, it can be to everyone's advantage if both sides back down at once, if one side refuses to back down, the other side may have little choice but to uh, confront them head on. Ideally, what you would like is enough knowledge of the lessons of history and of the way in which everyone could come out ahead by dividing the contested resources that both sides would back down simultaneously and everyone could have the best possible outcome. The problem is, if you're facing an adversary who fails to see it that way, uh, in that case, unilateral pacifism can be the worst poss- uh, possible outcome, such as in the case of, of, say, opposing Hitler during prior to the Second World War. So I think there's no general answer. It depends on the particular guy on the other side. Uh, one just has to realize that the, these two options might be uh, differently uh, desirable, depending on who you're facing.
0: Well, several years ago, there was a controversy about, I think it was a government-funded conference on genetics and violence. Now, um, of course, there is a genetic link to violence, and that is the male gene. However, African Americans and civil rights activists uh, said, whoa, we don't want our taxpayers' money to fund this, because it gives you the indication that perhaps races uh, could be uh quote, more prone, unquote, genetically to become violent, and that here was government money fostering what they thought was a bogus idea. Well, what does the science say about the question of race and violence?
2: Yes. Actually, that conference was on the biology of violence, not uh, not specifically on the genetics of violence. Mm-hmm. And so it also looked at, at uh, effects of abuse, effects of, um, of mothers ingesting drugs during uh, pregnancy. Uh, it. The approach of that conference was actually to look at violence as a public health problem, like uh, tobacco or environmental uh, pollutants. And in fact, it had a a rather liberal agenda. The people opposing it really didn't know what it was about and really uh, spread rather paranoid rumors about it being uh, about racial differences in tendencies toward violence, which, mm-hmm. which none of the participants uh, had actually planned to talk about. Uh, I don't think we have uh, any reason to believe that there are uh, innate differences among ethnic groups or races in their propensity toward violence, uh, simply because if you look, take a historic view, uh, cultures can switch from militant to pacifist or vice versa in a remarkably short period of time. I think uh, if... if uh, a hundred years ago, one would have said that one day the uh, Germans, the Japanese, would be the world's uh, strongest pacifists, and there would be a uh, nation of pugnacious soldiers uh, from uh, the descendants of, uh, of Jews in the European ghettos. Uh, they would have laughed you out of the room, but that's the situation we have now, and it shows that the uh, differences in ethnic groups are almost certainly due to differences in the circumstances that, that they face.
0: So, therefore, what is genetic? What is hardwired into the brain? Some studies, I think, on Dutch uh, families have shown that there is a streak of violence in some families, but part of that is related to testosterone levels that are controlled genetically, we think. So, therefore, if the question of violence is malleable, that societies can become warlike one day and pacifist the next, then what is hardwired in the brain?
2: Well, I I, I tend to avoid the word hardwired because it implies that given a uh, a, um, uh, a particular organism they're like wind-up dolls or uh, robots that can only behave uh, in the same way across every situation. I think that the what is innate is a set of strategies for dealing with the environment that you face uh, that you're currently facing and that in different environments different uh, psychological responses will be triggered uh, which will lead to more or less violence depending on the social, circumstance. One of them will be the degree of threat that you perceive. Another will be the presence of uh, an armed authority, uh, police force or government that you can call in to settle your scores for you. Another will be whether uh, you feel that your uh, honor has been compromised, whether you've lost face and that uh, if you don't regain respect and face, uh, you'll be a, a punching bag or a sitting duck. When that perception is triggered, people are likely to engage in violence just to prove how tough they are. When they uh, feel that they don't have to show off a pugnacious side in order to defend their interests, when they can call 911 for the police to show up, then they're less likely to challenge each other to duels or to uh, kill each other over uh, uh, trivial insults. Uh, So those are some of the uh, Uh, kind of the if-then rules that we're equipped with that uh, don't make anyone uh, or very few people likely to burst out in violence across the board, but can lead to violence being triggered if the circumstances are right. Okay,
0: now let's talk about another hot-button issue, and that is gender, and that is the role of women. Uh, In your book, you actually make a differentiation between two kinds of feminism. So could you elaborate now on the question of the blank slate and feminism?
2: Yes. there's uh, Many people believe that feminism must be committed to uh, the doctrine of the blank slate, that uh, if if we come into the world with nothing uh, in in our minds or brains, then there can't possibly be differences between little boys and little girls that are due to uh, biology. And therefore, that's the best way to ensure gender equity. Therefore, according to this line of reasoning, one should resist any tendency to say that men and women have any innate differences or, just to be on the safe side, resist any tendency that anyone has any, anything innate whatsoever uh, in order to maximize the, um, uh, the chances of ensuring gender equity. I, I dispute this line of argument uh, largely out of sympathy true feminism rather than hostility, that I don't think feminist ideals should be held hostage to what comes out of the lab on uh, the source of, of gender differences. And I borrow a distinction from a philosopher, Christina Hoff Summers, who distinguishes between equity feminism and gender feminism. Equity feminism is the classical liberal position uh, associated with the first wave of feminism that discrimination against people on the basis of gender is uh, is evil and is uh, counterproductive to society, That no one should be discriminated against based on the traits of an entire gender. Uh, gender feminism, on the other hand, is the belief that men and women are born uh, identical and that all differences between the sexes come from socialization, and that there is a vast male conspiracy to hold women down, which is the source of all differences between the sexes. The problem with gender feminism is that it's an empirical hypothesis. As the hypothesis begins to be disproven, uh, in fact, it's already been disproven, uh, it makes feminism uh, vulnerable. Uh, Anti-feminists could say, well, the basis of feminism, the boys and girls are identical, has been refuted. Therefore, let's go back to the 50s. Uh, I think a way to protect feminism is to say that questions of equity, of non-discrimination, are independent of statistical differences between the sexes or their source. And we should separate our commitment to equity from our empirical studies of where sex differences come from.
0: Okay, well, let's talk about little boys and little girls. Uh, Most liberals think that uh, the propensity for girls to to gravitate toward Barbie dolls and boys toward He-Man dolls and G.I. Joe is cultural. However, then they have children of their own. And then they realize that whatever it is, it starts awfully early, awfully early that little tykes will begin to gravitate toward certain kinds of gender-based toys. And the question is, is that a byproduct of our media saturation, that everywhere you go, you see images of women and men in certain roles, or is there really something in the human brain uh, that means that boys and girls have different outlooks toward toys?
2: Uh, I think there is something in the brain. One uh, bit of evidence is the experience of parents who... Try, who do everything in their power to present a uh, sex reversed role model to their children, and then discover that children left to their own devices will just gravitate towards the same uh, activities. Another is the fact that you see, even in other species, sex differences that, uh, vervet monkeys, the uh, the young males prefer to play with objects compared to the young females. They certainly haven't been exposed to television. A third kind of evidence is that the direction of the sex differences is universal across cultures. If it really was arbitrary which gender did which activity, you'd expect some cultures out there in which it's the little girls that uh, engage in rough and tumble play and play fighting and the little boys who engage in uh, mock social activities, but it never works out that way.
0: And that's it for the second half of Exploration. Once again, our special guest has been Professor Steven Pinker, professor of psychology at Harvard, author of the new book, The Blank Slate, The Modern Denial of Human Nature. And if you want a copy of today's program, call the Pacifica Program Service at 1-800-735-0230. That's 1-800-735-0230 for a copy of today's program. Good day.